Well, aloha from Maui, Hawaii. It's Michael Benner, and this is the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School for Sunday, October 11th, 2009. Very good to be with you. Thanks for joining us. Today's program is about anxiety, stress, if you will. You could even call it fear or worry or doubt or nervousness or apprehension or the woolies, or the (laughs) heebie-jeebies, or in Hawaii they say chicken skin. I bet you know exactly what they mean by chicken skin. Gives me chicken skin. That could be an oh boy or an oh no. And anxiety really could be a positive thing. There is something called eustress, E-U-stress, or to a scientist, uh, a researcher, it's often called adaptive stress or adaptive stimulation it says basically that we understand those of us who study the field that a little bit of stress is a wonderful thing it promotes evolution it promotes growth and healing it allows you even causes you to adapt to changing situations in your life A little bit of stress is a good thing. The problem is that there's a point of diminishing return where too much stress or anxiety or either an unwillingness or an inability to properly manage stress and anxiety leads to distress, right? And generally when people talk about stress as a problem, they're talking about distress not eustress or adaptive stimulus. Uh, Very few people even know about eustress. Again, mostly scientists and and researchers in the field. But I think it's a good idea to acknowledge right up front that all stress is not bad. And many of us really do our best when we're under a little bit of pressure. But again, whether it's uh, sports and performance, in a physical sense, whether it's becoming uh, lucid and uh, and clear mentally. Uh, I was trying to think of another word for lucid acumen, mental acumen, uh, uh, to be sharp, to be aware, to be alert, or even emotionally sensitive. We have to learn to manage the distress, all right, and bring it back into the realm of A little bit of good stress is just fine. It's a good thing. And and again, most of you probably learned a new word already for the day today. U-stress, good stress, E-U-S-T-R-E-S-S, okay? And many, uh, many athletes, I think, if you look at the field of sports psychology, which has really created some remarkable changes in the way athletes approach their training and their game in the last 30 years or so. You'll see very clear this uh, this uh, understanding that trying too hard destroys your performance. Uh, tight muscles are not powerful, and tight muscles are not coordinated. So, as you probably know from your own sports endeavors, if you shake off, so to speak, that stress and tension, 
if you use deep breathing and positive thinking, and we'll even talk about preparing in advance, managing stress before the game, we'll find a lot of allegories, a lot of areas where this performance anxiety is carried over into the rest of your life. Uh, for, for example, how many of us know the feeling or experience of being prepared to take a test in school and you studied all night and you crammed and hit the books and, boy, you really know the material. Maybe you have a friend quizzing you the night before and bam, 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 you got all the answers. You know it. You know that you know it. And the next morning you go into class and can't remember a thing, and you totally sabotage yourself. Uh, maybe it's because you didn't get enough sleep, but more than likely, it's just the general stress and anxiety, again, of trying too hard. Uh, the harder you try, the worse you do. There has to be a certain ease or grace or elegance in life, whether it's sports or mental acuity or emotional sensitivity, we, or even any kind of spiritual growth. Maybe I should say especially any kind of spiritual growth. We have to manage our fear. And isn't that what stress really is? It's fear by any name. Sure, we'll call it stress, we'll call it anxiety, nervousness, worry, doubt, apprehension, as they say. The chicken skin, the willies or heebie-jeebies. We've got a long list of synonyms for the word fear. Now, I will acknowledge that fear is not a clinical term. And so if a psychologist, a psychotherapist, a mental health specialist or social worker, when they talk about fear, they're talking about a response to danger to either clear and present danger or more often than not to imaginary danger, right? But stress, anxiety, by any name, feels exactly like fear. Even when you know you're not in danger, you're afraid perhaps you might be in danger. The point is you don't know. And that's what 99.9999% of your stress is. Not a danger of any kind, but things unknown and confusing. Now, I know there's a lot of you that like to take notes, so this is a good place to do it. Uh, rarely is stress or anxiety or fear about any real danger. It's things unknown and confusing, like imaginary danger. Fear of flying is a great example. Some of the phobias we'll talk about today. I had a client who had a unreasonable fear of lint, just freaked right out. Um, and we'll talk about some of the, the strange OCD behavior that uh, we see in severe cases, but also the little bits of OCD that all of us manifest from time to time when we get anxious or nervous or, or worried. So everybody has stress and anxiety, 
but most of us are confused about it. We feel frightened. We feel afraid. We might say, I'm just stressed. I'm really stressing, right? But the brain is hardwired to respond to it all as if it were real danger and that your survival is at stake. And you get this fight-or-flight fear response that most of the time, the vast majority of time, is inappropriate, right? If the danger is real and that adrenaline hits your blood automatically and your pupils dilate and your respiration goes up and your your pulse rate increases and your blood pressure increases and, and your hands begin to move into a fist and, and you feel like fighting or running, that's an automatic response to any kind of anxiety. The brain is saying, uh, you know, I am the product of your ancestors who are survivors as a result of this skill. To automatically assume any kind of worry or doubt just might have some danger in it. So we're going to err on that side. You know, sort of the brain's version of shoot first and ask questions later. But we're not in that much danger. And yet we've created a society where we are often confused. A lot of reasons for that confusion. The frenzy, the pace at which we live, the faceless nature of technology, the fact that we're working with machinery that we do not understand. Few people know what's going on in the computer they're sitting in front of daily. Few people know what's going on in a microwave. Few people could tell you how a radio works, much less a television. And we're surrounded by machinery we do not understand and can't fix and can't repair. And we don't feel like we have any control or management skills. But often that confusion is a product of, or at the very least compounded by, uh, this uh, confusion. And so I feel like I'm in danger. Not sure why. I look around. I don't see any danger. So why do I feel danger? It's the hardwiring in the brain. And what we have to learn to do is push the reset button and say, thanks for the effort, brain, but uh, this anxiety is not danger. It's confusion. And I don't need tight muscles. In fact, this fight-or-flight response is adding to my stress and anxiety and fear and making things worse. It's becoming distressful. So we need some skills, breathing, relaxing. We'll talk about management today and what to do about it. My approach, because this is such a huge topic and we could do weeks and weeks and weeks on this topic, my approach today is to just do a cursory overview of the nature of anxiety disorders as defined in the DSM. Now, this is pretty cool to learn about this. I remember when I first learned about the DSM, and uh, I never knew there really was such a thing. But what it stands for is Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. And it's in its fourth edition, which was first published, I think, about 1994. Uh, this is the Bible 
of mental disorders that is used by psychiatry, psychology, um, clinical social workers, and so on. This is the Bible of mental health. And as I indicated in the newsletter that went out this week, there is a thread that runs through our our behavioral dysfunctions and our mental and emotional problems that really needs to be examined, uh, a, a thread, a, a bit of continuity that runs through all of our problems and yet is often not discussed as a common thread in all mental illness. And that's our topic for today, anxiety disorders. So the dsm four. Oh, and by the way, there will be a fifth edition. I heard recently that it's coming out in 2012, right? So just in time for 2012, we'll have a new dsm five. So stay tuned for that. You don't have to be a professional to own this. You can go to you know, Borders or Barnes and Nobles or Crown or Amazon and buy a DSM. And if you're interested in stress and anxiety or psychology, it's a wonderful book to have. Like I say, it's it's in many ways a Bible. It's not the last word. It's primarily provided for creating a common language and system of codes, a coding system so that therapists can say, well, this is a number 300 anxiety, which is a general anxiety disorder as opposed to social anxiety or post-traumatic stress. And each of these have their own numbers for coding. And uh, uh, that's one of the primary functions of the DSM. But we're going to use it to look in a cursory way today at an overview of all anxiety all anxiety disorders, all right? And I'm just going to run them down for you. So I think it'll be pretty handy. You'll find yourself in here, <laughs> and you'll find your friends in here as we go down the list. First of all, I want to read a paragraph that I wrote uh, that sort of sums all this up. It goes like this. I wrote it down because I wanted to be precise. Anxiety disorders result from cycles of excessive external stimulus and confusion, which I'm describing as internal stimulus. Uh, sometimes I think of the Beatle tune, it's all too much. Yeah, you know, that it's all too much. Um, just being overwhelmed, right? Just it's too much stimulus, too... I'm trying to keep too many balls in the air as a juggler. I'm, I'm the old plate spinner from vaudeville trying to keep too many plates uh, spinning on the stick at the same time. And uh, I just can't keep it up. I'm at my wit's end. It's stimulus that that causes stress and anxiety. And there's basically two kinds. There's the physical stimulus from the world around you that you perceive through your five basic senses and sensations. And then there's the internal noise, the the monkey mind, so to speak, all those ideas inside your head and emotional feelings in your body that are demanding attention right now. 
okay? Like pictures in your head, or some of us are more auditory and may hear hear those pictures as voices, or those thoughts as voices, or pictures, or a combination, but they're shouting out, listen to me, I want to talk about this problem we have. Did you get the car fixed yet? You know, this is the inside of your head talking to you. And then your body feels, oh, no, I didn't get the car fixed. What am I getting? Oh, I don't have the money. Well, uh, you know, you think you worry about bills or the inside of your head is shouting out, let's think about uh, food, let's think about sex, let's think about um, this situation or that problem. As if these ideas are demanding our attention. In many ways, they are. Listen to me. No, listen to me over here. Do this. Do that. But, folks, the real tragedy here is that we identify with those pictures, those voices, and those feelings and believe that that's us. And so I'm going to sort of jump to the end of the class here and and give you the bottom line. The ultimate antidote for stress and anxiety is knowing that you are not the external stimulus that's causing your stress, but you're also not the internal stimulus, the mental and emotional confusion that is causing and compounding your stress. You are, your identity is the awareness that you can choose what you do with the situation. This is basic mindfulness. Let me say it simply. You don't have to do what your thoughts tell you to do. The thoughts in your head that demand your attention don't have to be obeyed. You need not allow them to run the show. And most people live their whole lives, grow old, and die, and nobody ever explains that to them. Because humanity just hasn't evolved yet to the point that some significant number of us are aware that we're more than our physical bodies, just like we're more than the stuff we own. I I, I know people who believe they are what they own. They are their car. You know people like that? They are the house they live in. They are the clothes they wear. They are their jewelry. They are the trophy wife. This is who I am. And an intelligent individual says, no, 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 no. That's just the appearance of things. You're more than that. And so we fall back on, well, then I must be my thoughts and feelings. And I guess I'm going to have to do what these thoughts and feelings tell me to do. My own thoughts and my own feelings, right? And so it's not that we take ownership of them. Quite the contrary. We take orders from them. Well, why did you do that? Because I felt like it. What do you mean you did it because you felt like it? Did you ever think that da-da-da-da-da-da? Well, no, I wasn't thinking. I did it because I felt like it. So did you choose that behavior? No. I did it because I felt like it. Or I did it because I thought it was the right thing to do. Well, did you think twice? 
did you think again? Was there any element of reflection or any experience of, do you know this, on second thought? Wait a minute, hold on. On second thought? I mean, if you are your thoughts, then what is the phenomena where suddenly your head opens up and you get a new thought, a new idea out of left field? Boing, it's like, whoa, wait a minute, on second thought? Where the hell did that come from? Just out of the blue, out of your brain, out of the cosmos someplace? And now you're going to say, well, I've got these two thoughts and I don't know which one to do. Who do I obey? You don't obey any of them. You be the mindfully aware consciousness. It's a little redundant. Awareness, consciousness is a point of choice that says, that's a wonderful thought. I'm going to repeat this thought and affirm this thought and embrace this thought or this feeling or this set of thoughts and feelings. And in the same way, we can say to ourselves, I'm having a lot of stressful thoughts, a lot of negative thoughts that are creating fear and worry and anxiety and doubt and nervousness and and apprehension. And I'm not sure what to do with all these thoughts. See, Well, you can say, I disagree with these thoughts. That's not true. Right? And, again, it's it's somewhat, not sure how to describe it, baffling to me why this is so difficult for folks to understand, though I see the challenges in my own life to getting sucked up into believing that I must do what my thoughts and feelings tell me to do. Or I have to, if they conflict, I have to decide which one is right or wrong. Well, maybe they're both wrong to some degree, or they're both correct to some degree. We need some way of managing stress, don't you see? The confusion, internal and external, so that we can rise above it. And from an elevated point of view, seeing the bigger picture, make better choices about which thoughts and feelings to honor, to affirm and pursue, and which ones to drop and let go of. In a world where the vast majority of people do simply what their thoughts and feelings tell them to do. I had to. Why'd you do that? I had to. I felt like it. (laughs) I had to. That's what I was thinking was the right thing to do. Yeah, but did you ever consider this? Well, no. Well, why not? Well, I was stressed and in a hurry, and that's the way I always think, you know, negative. Like Worry itself is fascinating if you consider that 98% of what you worry about is not even in front of you and has never happened before. You're worrying about things that have never happened. And most people can't tell you why they worry, except that in some bizarre way they think or feel that worry makes us feel safer. Or if it doesn't make us feel safer, somehow it'll make us safer. 
if we continually worry. And to think positively and expect the best, whoa, we can't go there. That would be too dangerous because then you'd be caught off guard. No, better for me to worry 24-7 than to be positive. But you know the law of attraction. You know that what you sow, you end up reaping. That you go where you look and you get what you expect and that what you put your attention on expands in front of you and that consciousness tends to be self-fulfilling. It's not always obvious to people because we're co-creating everybody. You know, it's part of the problem you see the secret once and think you're a metaphysician and that every thought, you know, creates reality and that your entire reality you created. You co-create with everybody else's consciousness. We're all part of the ocean of awareness. So this is just some of what we're going to touch on today as we review. Actually, as I said, that's more of a foreshadowing of the end of the class, talking about the solution. Let's uh, look again at the, uh, the problem. Let me finish this paragraph I began to read. So anxiety disorders result from cycles of excessive external stimulus and confusion, which is internal stimulus. Essentially, anxiety and confusion, whatever we call it, fear, ignorance, lack of awareness, they promote each other. They feed each other. And though some level of anxiety can be positive, as we've already said, so-called adaptive stress or eustress, Anxiety is also a byproduct of virtually all mental and emotional disorders. Did you hear that? Anxiety is a byproduct of virtually all mental and emotional disorders. And I could easily add to that physical disorders as well. Right? Being physically ill generates anxiety too. And therefore, anxiety disorders are the most common of all mental problems. The first approach to dealing with any mental problem is to learn to manage anxiety. Okay. So let's go down the list here. And uh, as, again, the DSM does in its fourth edition. Uh, and I have to begin by talking about something called an anxiety building block that is not part of the list but the DSM suggests can lead to the disorders on our list. And that's something called agoraphobia. I frankly think it should be on the list, right? But um, for whatever reason, it's defined by the DSM as a building block for anxiety disorder. But to me, uh, this can be a very, very paralyzing uh, disorder. Agoraphobia technically means fear of the marketplace or fear of open spaces. And it can be so debilitating, so incapacitating, that some people just can't even come out to the house. Like, even to open the door and step out on the porch to get the mail is terrifying for some people. And you say, why? What are you afraid of? And they'll immediately say, I have no idea, but I'm terrified. Right? Uh, you know,
You know the Randy Newman song that they use as the theme for the TV show Monk? Randy Newman sings, it's a jungle out there, you know, all these scary things out in the way. It's a, I love Monk, I think, uh, or Jack Nicholson in uh, uh, Good As It Gets. These guys have obsessive-compulsive disorder, uh, which we'll talk about in a few minutes. Um, you know, why, why is Monk afraid, right? Why is he afraid of uh, shaking hands, or he's largely germ-phobic, but... He also has a thing for numbers and special numbers, and and the picture has to be hanging perfectly straight, and the fringe on the rug has to be exactly right, or it just drives these people crazy. Because they're already running at a high level of stress and anxiety, and it doesn't take much more stress to put them over the top. So agoraphobia is a unique condition that, is a, a result of confusing high levels of anxiety with a particular place or point in space. Um, simple example, um, you get in a car accident at the intersection of Maine and Broadway, or you narrowly avoid uh, being in a car accident at the intersection of whatever, Maine and Broadway, and so, you know, your heart starts pounding and you get all this adrenaline into your blood automatically. The body goes into fight or flight and you're a nervous wreck for the rest of the day. But three or four days later, you're approaching the same intersection. And all of a sudden, you can feel your palms beginning to get sweaty and they're starting to curl into fists and you're gripping the steering wheel perhaps tighter and tighter as you approach and there's a lump in your throat and uh, palpitations and around the heart and and you gird your loins and it's tempting to even turn away and avoid the intersection and some people will they just don't even want to look at it so another week goes by this is a hypothetical but not that uncommon and you get within four blocks of the accident and you can't go any closer and a month goes by and now you can't get closer than six or eight blocks to the accident and the area grows that you're avoiding until in some severe cases people become housebound and again it doesn't always have to be a car accident it could be somebody laughed at you or mocked you or insulted you and you associate it with that person but also you project on all other people in your lives and figure everybody's going to feel that same way about you right and they all think you're stupid and again so you avoid social situations because of an extreme fear unreasonable but nevertheless an extreme after all if emotions were reasonable, they'd be thoughts, right? I don't know why we expect our emotional feelings to be reasonable. <laughs> That's an adjective that applies to thinking, not feeling. Uh, so I think that should be its own disorder, and I would not be surprised at all if uh, three years from now when the DSM-5 comes out, 
that we see uh, agoraphobia or agoraphobia, fear of the marketplace, uh, listed among the anxiety disorders. But for now, it's called an anxiety building block. Also, panic attacks are listed not as an anxiety disorder, but as an anxiety building block until they become repeated, they become a pattern, and they become compounded by a worry about future panic attacks. In other words, the only thing worse than a panic attack is worrying that you're going to have a panic attack, which ironically can lead to a panic attack and a horrible feeling of being out of control. Um, If you've ever just felt terrified for no reason and you think you're going to throw up or you feel like running and screaming and yet there's no place to run because every place you go you feel there's the same amount of danger over there or over there or there might be but I don't know and you know freak out so the first anxiety disorder we're going to talk about is not the panic attack but a pattern of panic attacks which the DSM calls panic disorder the first in our list of anxiety disorders is defined by the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual in its fourth edition. Panic disorder is repeated panic attacks featuring worry and distress about future panic attacks. All right. In my practice as a hypnotherapist, I've probably seen more panic attacks and panic disorder than any other uh, severe anxiety disorder. Again, everybody has anxiety, and all of us have anxiety by any name, stress or worry. You might say, well, I'm, I'm not frightened. I have my concerns, right? Or I'm not really afraid. I'm just a little bit nervous. All right, well, mince words if you want. Even the tiniest little bit of fear is still fear. It's just a tiny little bit of fear. And again, I know clinically uh, it's called anxiety, not fear. Technically, it's only fear if the danger is real and clear and present. If it's an unknown, if it's confusion, then it's called anxiety. I use the words pretty interchangeably because in in my practice, it doesn't matter if the fear is real or imagined. We treat it the same way. And again, we'll talk about specific tools and techniques in just a few minutes for dealing with panic attacks and these other stress disorders as well. But, gosh, let's uh, let's cop to it. It's a horrible, horrible feeling. Uh, personally, I have only had one occasion of panic in my life, and it was actually real danger, where... I was backpacking alone in the Sierras, and I had it in my head that I wanted to get to a certain campground before dark. And so I passed a campground that I could have stayed in about 3.30 or 4 in the afternoon, but I thought, no, I'm going to make it for this other one. Maybe you know Bear Paw Meadow. I'm headed for Bear Paw Meadow, uh, just... uh, east of uh, Lodgepole in the Sequoias. I'm going to make it. 
from Kings Canyon to Bear Paw Meadow before dark. Well, it turned out I was wrong, and I'm not going to make it, and there's no place to camp. And I suppose I could have just thrown the sleeping bag down on the trail and slept right there, but I got it in my head that I could take a shortcut. And back instead of backtracking to the campsite I had passed, I'd just take this shortcut and leave the trail, right? Not a good idea. It's getting dark. I'm exhausted, having climbed a 13,800-foot pass earlier in the day, carrying 50, 60 pounds on my back, um, not really eating right. You never really eat right when you're backpacking, no fresh vegetables or fruits, right? All this freeze-dried stuff. And I end up in a swamp up to my knees in muddy water, and it's getting dark. And I'm way off the trail. And the next thing I know, I'm running. I'm running through this swamp, thinking, well, i got to get out of this swamp and get up on the dry land and find that campground. I'm sure not going to sleep in the swamp, so I better run. So here I am, exhausted, hungry, lost, and running through a swamp with a 60-pound pack on my back as it gets dark. I I caught myself. Uh, Somehow, a little voice in the back of my head said, Michael, you're panicking. This is This is a panic attack. Only the reason for it is right here in front of you. You you are in danger. And you just compounded the danger. Stop running. And I did. And I just stood there. And I breathed. We'll talk more about the power of breath and dealing with anxiety today. I took some slow, deep breathing, and I just stood there. And I said, I may be wet, and I may not know where I am exactly or where the nearest campground is but I don't really need to make it to a campground I could sleep any place that there's dry land get some dry clothes on get these wet pants and these wet shoes off and build myself a little fire and dry it out and I just stood there thinking through my choices my options the consequences of my behavior while I took these slow, deep breaths. I nipped it in the bud, fortunately. God knows what would have happened if I hadn't listened to that little voice in the back of my head, which I think was there as a function of being somebody who has studied stress and anxiety all of my life. I mean, even when I was still in commercial radio, I was working as a hypnotherapist. I've done it all my life. It was when I left radio as a commercial enterprise in the late 80s that I began to do it full time. So I had some exposure to all of that. The more common panic attack, however, is the one that commences without any particular rhyme or reason. You just might be standing in line at the grocery store and suddenly feel very panicky or driving down the freeway and you have to pull over to the side of the road. It could Panic attacks could be accompanied by horrible feelings of doom and dread, as if the world's about to end, or something just horrible is happening that you can't quite put your finger on. 
as if somebody told you that you were terminal and dying of some horrible disease and you only had a week to live and somehow you knew that but had forgotten it. And so you're left with the feeling that you're going to die any day now, but you don't remember why you feel that way. That's what is so bizarre about these common, increasingly common, panic attacks. And the repeated panic attack, as I say, is called a panic disorder. The second anxiety disorder listed by the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, the dsm 4 is called specific phobia. And, uh, <laughs> you know, phobias, this could be a fear of an object or a fear of a situation. And it's not uncommon if you have one phobia to have several. For um, somebody that's afraid of the dark, might also be afraid of wind or um, afraid of claustrophobia being closed in or the sight of blood uh, terrifies them. Again, it could be something somewhat understandable like the fear of snakes or creepy crawly insects and spiders that you know people uh, have decided to uh, give them the creeps and uh, and and so they have a fear of spiders. But as I, as I said at the top of the show, it could be something as innocuous as a fear of lint or, um, you know, somebody shaved in the, in, the, in the wash bowl in the bathroom and didn't rinse the bowl out and there's a bunch of little hairs in the, in the wash bowl from dad shaving and somebody looks in there and even a single hair in the wash bowl freaks them out. They don't know why. They can't explain it. And you say, well, a good psychologist could figure out what that's associated with. Well, maybe and maybe not. Well, again, we can't expect our fears and phobias to be reasonable. Reason is a quality for mentality. Reason is something we expect from thinking, from logic, from rationality, not from emotions. Do not expect or need your emotions to be reasonable, <laughs> right? Any more than we should expect our thoughts to carry an affect. That's what emotions are. They're affective. and Thoughts are reasonable. So get that sorted out. So a fear of heights could be a phobia, a fear of uh, dogs. Uh, I have a friend who has a severe fear of dogs, but we understand that in her case because she was attacked by a pack of dogs and so she has an experience that leads to the fear of dogs but some people they're just always afraid of dogs they're afraid of little you know cocker spaniel puppies and for no reason at all uh, so specific phobias would be the second type of anxiety disorder the third you're hearing more about as big pharma drug companies advertise new drugs, they call them medicines, on television, and that's social phobia, sometimes called SAD, S-A-D, for social anxiety disorder. Isn't that cute? So if you're sad, 
because you're worried about what other people may think about you, if your fear or anxiety is public embarrassment or a sense that you just ought to be ashamed of yourself <laughs> for whatever reason, again, it doesn't have to, you won't find a reason most likely. You'll probably, your mind will try to make up some reasons. You know, we work backward instead of having a thought that leads to a feeling, a lot of us are stuck in high anxiety, emotional feelings, and then we try to fit some sort of mental cause to rationalize the pre-existing feeling and live our lives backwards in that regard. So they've got a drug for you. They've got a whole bunch of drugs for you, and they lie to you when they tell you that the drugs they're giving you are supplying a chemical that is missing in your brain. It's not true. Many of these drugs, the medical establishment and big pharma has no idea why they work or how they work. But most of the drugs that are so-called tranquilizers or prescribed for depression, um, sometimes for bipolar, and often for social phobias or the so-called sad uh, disorder, are known as serotonin reuptake inhibitors. And serotonin is a neurotransmitter like norepinephrine that, um, or dopamine that is generated by the brain. It's a feel-good chemical. It's thousands of times more powerful than morphine. And the brain generates small amounts of this that last about well, anywhere from 8 to 24 hours before getting flushed out of the system. The drugs that are often prescribed, the Paxil, the Prozac, the Wellbutrin, the Xanax, these are serotonin reuptake inhibitors. In other words, they block the, the body's ability to flush uh, these neurotransmitters out of the system, and you get an accumulation of a natural chemical that makes you feel better, but it's the drug that's doing it. And it's uh, misleading and false to tell people that this is like some sort of vitamin that is supplying nutrients or chemical compounds that are missing in your brain. It's just not true. The fourth area is absolutely fascinating. To me, this is one of the most fascinating areas of all anxiety disorders, and it's uh, OCD. OCD is uh, the acronym for Obsessive Compulsive Disorder, and it's pretty simple to understand the difference between the two if you think that obsessive is a thought often accompanied by a feeling or a set of thoughts and feelings that I can't seem to stop thinking. I'm just obsessing. I think for most people, sex and food are good examples, where some people just obsess. They can't stop thinking about sex, can't stop thinking about food. But it, it, could, be, um, it could be a lot of things that we obsess on that we just can't seem to stop thinking about. Um, and compulsive would be the same thing for a behavior. So uh, obsession is I can't stop thinking about it. Compulsion or compulsive behavior is I 
can't stop doing it. Uh, common OCD, you've heard, uh, step on a crack, you'll break your mother's back. And you say, well, that's a silly childhood thing. Nobody really believes that. Well, Monk does, and Jack Nicholson did in the <laughs> in the film we talked about, uh, Good As It Gets. I think that was the title. And uh, literally millions of other people have a problem with that. And it's not because somebody made up a silly childhood rhyme one day. Quite the contrary. Uh, it is an obsessive disorder that led to the coining of that phrase. And why? Nobody really knows why people get that into their heads. But it's, you know, just one of many obsessive-compulsive disorders. The list is really far too long for me to go through, but uh, I'll, I'll try to give you uh, some other examples of common OCD behavior. Another one is door-checking, where some people are completely debilitated and incapacitated by the need to continually check and see if the door to the house is locked. I mean, so severe that they get in the car, drive away, go a block down the street, and start thinking, did I really lock the door, or do I only think I locked the door? Damn it, I just can't take a chance. And so they turn the car around, go back, and check the door. But here's the thing, they're so stressed that they're thinking about 15 other things while they're checking to see if the door is locked. And so when they get in the car and drive away for the second time now, they have no conscious memory of checking the door, and they're in the same situation. Now maybe they get three blocks away and go, damn it, I just I need to make sure. I just don't know for sure that I locked that door. Some people will do this all day long and never get to work or school. And some people won't leave the house because they can't seem to focus or concentrate their attention on what they're doing, exclusive of distraction, long enough for that impression to remain. Okay? Sometimes it gets real complicated, like big ethical questions. I had a client who brought home like 500 pounds of dog food one day. And his wife said, what's with all the dog food? We don't even have a dog. We've got two cats. What, what are you doing? Why did you buy 500 pounds of dog food? And my client said to his wife, I got it in my head. This would be obsessive. I got it in my head that I had poisoned one of these bags, I couldn't stop thinking that I had poisoned the dog food in one of these bags, but I had no idea which bag I'd put the poison in. This is a guy that knows he did not do this, who is not carrying poison with him, who wouldn't hurt a fly, but has such high anxiety manifesting his OCD that he gets this thought in his head 
and he can't get it out, and because he's really a sweet, kind, loving, ethical guy, decides to buy all the dog food, take it home, and throw it away. He can't give it to anybody because he might have poisoned it. Right? So hundreds of dollars he's going to throw all this dog food away because he didn't know how else to make sure that he hadn't poisoned the dog food. I even had a client that uh, used to think that as he was driving to work that he was hitting people in traffic. And again, part of his brain is saying, I know I didn't. And I said to, to him, I said, don't you think if you hit somebody with the car, you'd know it? And he would admit that, yeah, it's likely, but I don't know, maybe not. Maybe not. Maybe I'm just so crazy that I could hit somebody and not know it. And I'd say, but didn't you have that thought yesterday? Yeah. And the day before? Yeah. And pretty much every day? Uh, yeah. And sometimes many times a day? How debilitating was it? This fellow often could not get to work because he'd get it in his head that he'd just run over somebody in traffic, had no memory of it, of course, because it never happened, but he would circle around the block. And I say, when you see there's no body there, what do you do? Can you go off to work then? Are you convinced? He said, no, I then believe they must have crawled off into the bushes, injured, bleeding, dying. And I said, so what do you do? He said, I parked the car and I start going through the bushes. And I said, and when you find no one bleeding and dying in the bushes, what do you do? He says, well, I figure maybe somebody took him to the hospital. And I said, is that enough? Can you drop it? He said, no, I have to call the hospitals. Now you might say, well, that's just crazy. Well, crazy is not a clinical term. Crazy doesn't tell you very much. And the truth of the matter is that these people often are not that dysfunctional in other areas of their lives. They're, they're very friendly, amiable, kind, uh, loving, uh, productive, at least on those days they can get to work or school, right? Otherwise, you'd have no, if they didn't confess it to you or if you, if you did not witness it, you would have no reason to believe that this person was having a problem this severe. Okay. Um, I had a bit of OCD um, as a kid, which I described as evening out. And this was, uh, and, and again, scientists have no real explanation other than to pin it on anxiety. But well, this is not uncommon either, and I wonder if you can relate to this. If I was, um, this is when I was a little boy, maybe, I don't know, six, eight, nine, ten years old. Um, I think by the time I was 11 or 12, I had dropped it. I probably just forgot about it or grew out of it, so to speak. But say I was riding in the car or on a school bus, and I would tap my left foot inadvertently, I'd have to tap my right foot to even it out. As if I didn't do that, something horrible would happen. A lot of superstitions are born of OCD. Well, if you tap your left foot and then you tap your right foot to even it out, you've now got a pattern, left, right, 
which has to be evened out. So you tap your right foot and then your left foot to even it out. But it's never even, because now you have a pattern of left, right, right, left that needs to be evened out. So you do right, left, left, right to even it out, but the pattern grows bigger and bigger geometrically. It's like playing that Simon game from 20 years ago until you just can't handle it anymore. And you quit, you give up until the behavior repeats itself. It's an anxiety disorder, folks. Everything we've talked about today is the result of nervousness, worry, stress, stimulus overload, trying to do too much. Undeveloped self-esteem plays a role also. And there are other things that lead to stress. We'll touch on in just a few minutes as I talk about what to do with all this stress and anxiety, short of taking these horrible drugs. You know, if you have to, uh, I'm not going to judge anybody that says, I'm sorry, I've tried everything else, I need these medicines. All right, I'm not judging anybody, but my appeal to you is start with the least intervention possible. You don't start with brain surgery, and you shouldn't start with drugs. You should start with breathing and some responsibility for the way you feel. And i got a bunch of techniques I'm going to give you in just a few minutes. And then we'll do a relaxation exercise and show you how to manage stress and anxiety in any one of these cases when it comes upon you, but also before it happens to you. You can head it off at the pass. Number five in our list from the DSM-4 is post-traumatic stress syndrome. You're reading a lot about that with veterans coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan, PTSD, uh, the DSM calls this post-traumatic stress disorder, and um, it's reliving a trauma. And it's often the nature of stress to be delayed. Uh, delayed stress is really redundant. Um, have you ever worked real hard and then gone on vacation and the first day of vacation you get a severe migraine or you get sick and you go, why is it that I work so hard and I'm healthy and I feel fine though I'm exhausted and then I go on vacation, I finally have nothing to do, I put it all down and then I get sick. Wow, how crazy is that? Well, it's not crazy at all. Your body is, and your brain is very good at adapting and rising to the occasion. And it's often when we put down the cause of the stress that the impact of the stress, the negative, debilitating impact of the stress comes upon us when, when we let go of what's causing it. And what in World War I was called shell shock, uh, has come to be called post-traumatic stress disorder or dysfunction. And um, it's just reliving the nightmare of the trauma, whatever it was you went through. It could be war. It could be uh, rape. It could be uh, that you were attacked and beaten on the street. Uh, it could be the loss of a loved one. 
you know, a horrible car accident, all kinds of things that are really, not just stressful, but really traumatic. And sometime after that, you begin to suffer the effects because the body was pretty good initially with coping. Number six is acute stress disorder, and this is pretty much the same thing as post-traumatic stress disorder, but it begins either during the trauma or immediately following the trauma. So, again, somebody who's been in the theater of war for a period of time could have acute stress disorder while it's still happening. It's only post-traumatic stress disorder if it commences afterwards, as I've just explained. There is something called GAD, Generalized Anxiety Disorder. Uh, again, a lot of these are put in the DSM as a way of coding. I don't know where else to put the person, so I'm going to stick them under General Anxiety Disorder, defined as uh, being tense or anxious much of the time with occasional panic attacks, a fear of intimacy, of being close to other people, uh, can also fall under the GAD category, general anxiety disorder. There is such a thing as anxiety due to a medical condition, particularly the thyroid. Uh, emotional depression can also be the result of thyroid replacement or some kind of dysfunction with the thyroid gland, either hyperthyroidism or hypothyroidism. Um, and it could be that you have a medical condition that is causing a symptom that feels like emotional anxiety, but it's really a symptom of your physical condition. That's why it's always a good idea to check with a physician. Uh, something called substance-induced anxiety disorder would be the anxiety that results from getting hooked on alcohol or cocaine, uh, meth, uh, even caffeine, you know, uh, to stop drinking coffee if you're feeling really stressed and wound up uh, is a good first step, or putting down the alcohol. Uh, as far as meth and coke and PCP and those drugs, man, uh, you're just asking for stress and anxiety. That's the high that people are looking for with speed. And uh, then we actually have something called stress 300, which is, the anxiety disorder not otherwise specified. So this is for the psychologist or the psychotherapist that says, my client is stressed like crazy, wound up like a rubber band, but I can't fit him in any of these other categories, so I'll give him a 300 code, which is anxiety disorder not otherwise specified. And you may want to know, we haven't talked about sleep disorders or eating disorders, and is that stress-related? Yeah, it often is, but um, it gets its own category in the DSM. It has its own section, stress disorders, and um, I'm sorry, stress disorders are separate from eating disorders and sleeping disorders. They, they have their own categories. Now, there is something called free-floating or nonspecific anxiety, which all of us experience. I've been saying this today. We all have a little bit of stress or moderate amounts of stress or an ebb and flow of anxieties and nervousness in our lives. 
Here are some ways that it will manifest. Here's a quick list of things to look for that maybe can't even be pinned to a particular event or circumstance or situation or relationship. It's just, as they say, free-floating or nonspecific anxiety. It's the accumulation of living in a crazy world in the 21st century, just the frenzy of it all. Look for tight muscles, right? Especially the neck and the shoulders, the lower back, uh, the belly, irritable bowel syndrome, right? That kind of stuff. Tight muscles. Some people gather in some areas this anxiety is muscular tension. Others it gathers in other areas. Shallow breathing is another sign. Heart palpitations. The experience of butterflies in your stomach or weakness in the knees. Dilated pupils, sweaty palms, uh, difficulty concentrating or so-called scattered attention. Emotional numbness or insensitivity. In the same way, a lack of empathy it can be stress-related, often is. General confusion, so-called attention deficit disorder. Stress-related, but the medical establishment refuses to identify it as stress-related. But I've cured countless people who've been diagnosed with ADD or ADHD simply through stress management skills. Okay, I'm not saying all attention deficit uh, can be can be pinned on stress. But my experience is the vast majority of what's called ADD is stress. You're frightened and your brain won't let you concentrate. It's trying to protect you from the danger that just might be hidden in that confusion. Poor short-term memory is an example. Also, a suppressed immune system, you get sick more often. Uh, poor coordination, also... Um, uh, Low self-esteem or feelings of alienation or even being invisible, not mattering. You don't count. Okay. And uh, that's, I think, about as far as I'm going to go with this. I've got another list of case studies from my practice over the years. Some things here I think need mentioning, like TMJ, temporal mandibular joint syndrome, sometimes called wrongly lockjaw. It's just um, uh, tension where the bottom jaw joins the skull in that, um, in that area where, they, where, where they're hinged. Uh, temporal mandibular joint syndrome is tension in that area, the temporal mandibular joint. And... Some people, when they open their mouths wide, you'll actually hear a popping sound. And if you or someone you know has that, when they open their jaw, right, go to yawn or just deliberately open the jaw, pop, pop, right? Sounds like popcorn going off. That's TMJ. And uh, often you get sent to the dentist, and they give you an appliance to keep you from grinding your teeth or readjusting the jaw somehow. Teeth grinding is called bruxism. That's a different symptom of stress. But they're all stress-related. Uh, leg bouncing. You ever 
catch yourself bouncing your your knees bouncing up and down. You're working the you're working your foot at the toes and bouncing your legs with that, trying to throw off that nervous energy. Nail biting in the same way, sign of stress. Hair pulling. Um, let's see, what are some of my other case studies here? Uh, scattered thinking. Uh, Paralysis by analysis, the tendency to overthink something, to think it and 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 drive yourself crazy, but, again, not a clinical term, but you're not doing anything. You're paralyzed by the fact that you're overthinking it. TMI, too much information, right? Uh, Anger and frustration for no apparent reason, having a really short fuse. Uh, crying for no apparent reason. You just feel like crying. Uh, best thing to do is cry. But when you try to figure out why, it could just be an accumulation of non-specific stress. Okay. Um, bickering in relationship, poor communication skills, um, a rigid, set mind, uh, sadness, depression, uh, absence of goals, um, malingering, uh, procrastination is a big one. We talked about gastrointestinal problems, tension, headaches, stress-related. We talked about ADD and ADHD. Um, being very, very highly self-critical, um, pessimism, uh, self-destructive behavior and self-sabotage, like people that drive too fast or smoke cigarettes or drink too much or drink and drive, uh, often there's a death wish in all of this. People are trying to kill themselves. They just don't realize it. Uh, an extreme sensitivity to pain, whether it's emotional or physical pain. Um, lack of empathy, I think I mentioned. Chronic fatigue. Um, gosh, it's just so much. Self-loathing, feeling guilty and not sure why you're guilty feeling like you're always wrong, feeling invisible, like nobody sees you, uh, like you're an alien from another planet, uh, feeling abandoned or uh, helplessly hopeless. There's another one. Just a smattering of the way uh, stress and anxiety, nervousness, doubt, and worry can manifest in your life. So let's take some questions here, whether you're on the telephone or by the web. If you're on the web, use the text box at the bottom of the page. Include your name and city in the appropriate fields and click on Submit. And if you're on the telephone and would like to participate, press star 2. And we'll begin with the text and then go to the telephones and just on your, those of you on the phone, just press star 2 on the touchpad of your telephone, and that will indicate to me, through the magic of computers and the Internet, that uh, you want to be unmuted. It'll easy to do, and just like class, you can ask your question out loud. So either way is fine. We'll start with the text questions, and uh, see who's online. Carol is... Always at the head of the pack, again today, <laughs> Carolyn Habra. Aloha, Carol. Uh, Tony Lavigny in L.A. is with us, says, Michael, checking in uh, to say hi, riding my bike through Hollywood all afternoon and listening through my phone. 
through the headphones on his telephone. And looking forward to another great show. That's uh, very cool. My dope, I, my friend, uh, uh, I have a friend who calls his iPhone his, his dope iPhone. Just the coolest thing in the world. And uh, Apple Valley, Don, is with us again today and says, Hola, Michael. Uh, class just started, and so maybe you've already addressed my concern. I know you and Doreen enjoy movies. And Robin Williams in The Fisher King comes into my mind. Uh, the dragon in Robin's head in the movie uh, scared the bejesus out of me. And if our fears are created out of our imagination, uh, and even if we know that or kind of know that, how does it make it any less frightening? Well, if you use only your mind to reason, uh, it probably won't. You get caught up in a vicious cycle of my thoughts are not real, it's only my imagination, there's really nothing to fear, but then that's just another thought. And if you think the problem is the thought and the solution is the thought, which thought, if they contradict each other, has value and merit, and you end up just arguing with yourself. So what we have to do is breathe and relax. Right. Let's start talking about the antidote. There are many things that we need to do to manage stress. Get enough sleep. This is an important list. I'm going to go down it fast, but it's a very important list. Most people are sleep-deprived. You need more sleep. Eat right. Stop eating junk food. Get the best whole organic foods that you can. Live food. Cook them is just enough to make them flavorful and palatable. Organic fruits and vegetables, grow your own. Uh, schedule enough time to cook so you're not tempted to go with all frozen foods and microwave and that kind of thing. Um, it's As Bill Maher says, the food from the grocery store will kill you. You, you, you need real food. Uh, so those are two things. Get enough sleep, eat right, express your emotional feelings verbally and in any other way possible. If you're a singer, sing. If you're a dancer, dance away your stress. If you're a painter and you're angry, paint an angry painting. Anything not expressed ends up repressed. And so to get it out of you, you need to express it even if it's as simple as journaling or telling a close friend how you feel. And telling the close friend, I don't need a solution from you. You don't need to fix this. I just want you to listen. This is something that women do more than men. Men want to fix problems. And women just want to talk about them. But often don't tell the men that that's all they need. And so the guy tries to fix the problem, and then the woman says, well, that discounts my feelings. I didn't want it fixed. I wanted some somebody to talk to about it, right? And so, you know, a lot of women will call the girlfriends and talk about it and feel much better. And the guy says, well, I could have fixed it. And, you know, it's a Mars-Venus thing. It really is. Um, let's see, what else? Connecting to nature. Put your hands in the dirt. Uh, 
walk in the park, get out of the city, connect with nature. That's a big source of stress is the fact that we've put ourselves in completely artificial, paved-over urban environments. Humor is another one that comes to mind. Laugh. Laugh out loud. Humor is the best medicine, right? It's a loving effervescence that bubbles up from inside you and goes a long way uh, to help you manage stress. These are a few of the things, but the most important thing you can do, short-term, long-term, in advance, while it's happening, is breathing, slow, deep breaths, feeling your muscles relax, to create and sense in your body a feeling of letting go, and then closing your eyes. These three behaviors, to take a few slow, deep breaths, to feel a letting go in the body. Sometimes I tell my clients, you've heard me do it, I'll bet some of you, suggest that they feel like butter on a warm day, just slowly softening, yielding, feel the letting go. That combined with slow, deep breathing and closing your eyes, those are three messages to the brain, to the subconscious, that I'm stressed, but it's about confusion not danger. My stress is about confusion, not danger. So I don't need fight-or-flight response. I don't need tight muscles, heart palpitations, high blood pressure, dilated pupils, the ability to fight or run, because uh, it's not danger. It's one of those 99% of the time situations where my stress is about confusion and things unknown feeling out of control, and to breathe, and to feel your muscles relaxing, to feel safe, and to close your eyes, those are three powerful messages that essentially that's meditation or contemplation, okay, and that that's the most important, if you're going to do one thing, that that's not going to make up for a lack of sleep or eating bad food or refusing to express aloud your feelings, but it's probably better than any one of the other tools or techniques. Out of uh, Tucson, Lorelai Hatch is with us uh, again. She hardly misses ever. She says, thank you, great class, peace and love. Thank you, Lorelai. And Placentia Louis says, hi, Michael, wanted to tell you that I've been listening to you since the KLOS days in the 80s, lost you for a while, then discovered you on KPFK, lost you again, and found you again. Let me just say three cheers for Google. Huh? Google. <laughs> what a cool thing. Congrats on making it out to Hawaii. It's my dream to live out there, and maybe I'll get a chance to see you again. Spirituality is very important, but you are missed in the political arena. Uh, wouldn't it be great if you could either add a little more to your show for politics or divide it in order to accommodate both? Yeah, I've thought about doing that, and if I have enough interest in it, I'll do it. I could always do a second one of these. The system I use for this, um, I have unlimited use of uh, 24-7, 
this conference called Web-Based System. So if enough of you guys are interested, we could even start with a study group of a few people. Um, but uh, let me know on that. Give me some feedback. Email me, mb at theagelesswisdom.com. Robert in Irvine says, Aloha, Michael. What's the best way to handle fear of change, like starting a new job or moving to a new city for work? Uh, fear of change is like fear of anything else. It's fear of the unknown. All fear, Robert, is fear of the unknown, unless it's a clear and present danger. And that's almost never the case. The closest any of us get to real, clear, and present danger is driving in traffic on the freeway. Some of us have been robbed on the street. Some of us have been assaulted uh, physically. There is, you know, coming around the corner and there's a rabid dog there growling at you. That's real danger, you know, or a grizzly bear in the woods or a rattlesnake. That can be really a dangerous situation, although much of the danger is bound up in how we respond or react to the event. But to remind yourself that even if the danger is real, that what we fear is what we don't know about the danger. And 99% of the time, there is no danger. We're just afraid of anything new. So you ask about fear of change. Anything new is going to be frightening. Any change is going to be frightening. We've got countless studies that show positive change is just as stressful as negative change. The birth of a baby in the family, just as stressful as when someone dies. Isn't that amazing? Moving into a new house, just as stressful as getting foreclosed upon, or, or getting a great new job can be every bit as stressful as being fired unexpectedly from a job you loved. So it's all fear of the unknown, and you handle it the same way. You breathe, and you relax, and you close your eyes. And practice meditation, contemplation, introspection, reflection, whatever you call it. But we have to, you know, Steve and I sometimes call it narrow awake. If wide awake is being overstimulated, and asleep is no stimulus at all, there's a place in between that alpha brainwave level, called narrow awake. And you know you're there when the mind is singular and not distracted. And, and you can pay attention. That's a funny phrase, pay attention. But concentration is a relaxation skill. And the more stressed you are, the more the mind jumps around. The good news is you don't have to quiet the mind to meditate. You meditate so as to quiet the mind. And that's the best best answer I can give you to that, Robert. Patricia in Los Angeles says, Aloha, Michael and Doreen, great show. My brother-in-law has a very debilitating case of OCD, and I believe I also have a light case myself. My ex had emotional problems from Vietnam, which... Uh, led to our breakup. I just wanted to share. I believe talking about this helps a lot of us who might believe that we're all alone. I agree with you, Patricia. And by the way, it was very nice to see you and your husband here in Maui a couple of weeks ago. Patricia and her husband were here on vacation, and, and we, we met them in Eau Valley for an afternoon. 
by the way, Steve and I are doing small half-day seminars here in Hawaii, but next year we are going to do a week-long transformational seminar, and uh, I don't have a date, and I don't have the details yet, but it's something to think about and look forward to. It's going to be a life changer, and um, whether you've been to Maui and know how beautiful it is, or even if you've never been here and can only imagine, uh, a week with Steve and I in this beautiful setting will change you, I guarantee you, for the better. As you discover the truth of who you are, a lot of these fears and stresses are going to fall away. Uh, Zen is with us. I believe uh, Zen is in, in, uh, in Orange County. He says, I just noticed today that there's only one letter difference between Alpha and Aloha. And, yeah, somebody pointed that out to us not long ago. That You put a vertical line on the left side of the O in Aloha, and you have Alpha. And uh, it's pretty cool because they really are in many ways the same thing. And as I check my callers, I don't see any hands raised again. You bashful, bashful people. I'm going to start hiring ringers if that's what I need to do. It's okay. It's just we have this cool system, and I'm anxious to use it. The last time we had a caller, I uh, clicked on her, and this was two, three weeks ago, and ended up dumping the whole conference call because I was using two different browsers and didn't realize it. So that will not happen again, I promise you. Well, let's do a little relaxation exercise for general stress management because uh, like Don and Robert and some of the other folks here, you're looking for practical, portable tools and techniques that you can use to manage your stress and anxiety. So, again, exercise, sleep, eat right, connect with nature, express your emotions verbally or through some artistic behavior, um, and connect with nature. Am I repeating myself? Uh, get out and, and walk in a city park or go up into the foothills or the mountains or the countryside or just dig in the dirt, even if you want to repot your philodendron. It's good for you to connect. And so much of our anxiety and the overall dissatisfaction with life, and even the unkindness and the anger and the hatred that we see in our fellow man, so much of it is connected to having uprooted ourselves from nature and moved ourselves into these totally artificial environments where you roar down the freeway, this big machine at a high rate of speed. It's not natural. And maybe after a few hundred thousand years, we'll adjust, we'll evolve. But we can't keep up with the pace of technology. So you have to do a better job of managing yourself. And the best single thing that any of us can do to manage our fears, our anxieties, and our stresses is meditation, relaxation, contemplation, or even prayer properly done. 
You know, you can't really call it prayer if you're not yielding, if you don't feel safe and relaxed. You, if you pray out of a tense place, out of a nervous, anxious place, you might as well save your breath. You're not going to connect. How do you know when you're there? Simple. If there's a bunch of ideas or feelings in your head that are competing for attention, listen to me, look at me, what about this, what about that? Did you consider this? Did you do that? Yeah, nah, 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 nah. You're in normal consciousness, wide awake. You know you're an alpha when most of that falls away and you're left with this beautiful ability to simply rest your attention. And I'd like you to do that now. I'd like you to close your eyes and take a couple of slow, deep breaths. Ah, only one at a time, no fair, multiple breathing. Only one breath at a time. <laughs> and as you exhale that breath, create and sense a letting go feeling. And after two or three of these slow breaths, put your attention on the bottom of your nose, gently and effortlessly. And as your body finds its own natural breathing rhythm, simply watch the in and the out of your breathing at the very point where it enters and leaves the body, the bottom of the nose. And simply witness the waves of breath rolling in, sort of crashing on the beach, so to speak, as you peak and then as you exhale, uh, imagine the breath rolling back out to sea. Then another wave rolls in, and as you begin to exhale, ah, you feel the letting go. You see? And in your body, from the top of your head to the soles of your feet, create and sense a softening, a, a yielding, a, almost a, a kind of a melting feeling. So that you sit erect as a result of being balanced, but not rigid. No, you're not rigid at all. You're nicely balanced and relaxed and feeling very safe. And already your emotional nature is becoming more and more calm. And the mental nature is beginning to quiet as you allow my voice to lead you. My voice will guide you. Allow my voice to go with you. And I'd like you to imagine that you're looking at the flame of a single candle. And of course, the feeling you're making this up is exactly right. However it occurs to you, just a feeling in your body that you're looking at a candle or maybe you get a nice clear picture or a picture that fades in and out and jumps around a little bit or becomes ten candles and then one candle and then a birthday cake and then one candle 
that's okay. And let your mind have the time it needs to begin to quiet and slow down with your eyes closed, feeling very safe and relaxed. You begin to see a single candle flame. And I'd like you to imagine that the candle flame is flickering a little bit. But as you watch it, it stops slowly. It begins to stop, and eventually the flickering, the waving of the flame ceases altogether. And the candle flame burns brightly and boldly without being disturbed without wavering or flickering in any way whatsoever. In the same way, consider a small pond or a lake, and the surface of the water is a little choppy, but as you watch the surface of the water, it gradually begins to become calm. The waves smaller and smaller until they're just little wind ripples and then even the little wind ripples disappear. And the surface of the lake becomes smooth as glass. And imagine as you look into the glass lake, you see reflected on its surface the unwavering candle flame. And you relax and effortlessly observe the candle flame burning brightly without any disturbance. As if reflected on the surface of this pool that similarly is undisturbed. And you feel that sense of tranquility in your body as if you really are safe. And you begin to realize that right now in this moment you really are safe. And that fears and anxieties, worries and doubts and nervousness tend to either come from the past memories that you're bringing with you or projected from the future again a behavior you can release indeed must release to bring yourself into the point that is now this moment you are safe physically still, mentally quiet, and emotionally tranquil, a peak performance state for releasing all of the symptoms of stress and anxiety that we've discussed today. Take another slow, deep breath. And as you exhale, reaffirm your ability.
ability to feel safe and relaxed. On demand, although you remember it is a practice, and you recommit to the practice right now. Telling yourself silently and internally that you can bring this feeling with you back to the waking state. See how long you can maintain this wonderful attitude, this peaceful, easy feeling, this grace and this elegance as you move about your day today. Monitor yourself as you bring this wonderful feeling, this peace of mind with you back to the waking state. Orienting yourself to the sound of my voice, remembering where you are and what you'll see in just a moment when you open your eyes. Take another slow, deep breath, inhaling. Hold for a moment as you peek, and then as you exhale, open your eyes now. Wide awake and alert, rested, refreshed, feeling fine. <laughs> Back in the room, all re-energized and revitalized and rejuvenated and clear it out. There was a time in our past where these types of exercises were not necessary because people lived a fairly easy lifestyle, many of them. There have always been the poor people that had to work very hard, but it's absolutely imperative now in the 21st century that everybody set aside 10 minutes a day. You brush your teeth, don't you? You comb your hair, don't you? You take a bath or a shower every so often, I hope. You brush your teeth. you got to meditate. Otherwise, you're going to suffer from the anxiety. The fears and tensions and worries that you just won't, in most cases, be able to explain or understand. Free-floating, non-specific anxiety. Just reading the newspaper, you know, <laughs> It all adds up. Why don't you take a week and not watch or read any news at all? Uh, maybe even make it two weeks or a month of just no news at all. And if you completely are jonesing for it and you got to have a few headlines, do it at the beginning of your day and then get about your business. Don't watch the news just before bed. It's too frightening. It makes nightmares. You won't let your kid watch monster movies before they go to bed because they have scary dreams. If your life is a scary dream, awake and or asleep, it's because of what you've been watching, what you've been thinking. Remember, TV news is designed to sell your products. Print news is designed to sell your products. It's not about informing you. It's about captivating your attention in a vulnerable state to then sell you a product. It's called commercial media for a reason. All right. Hey, I'd love to hear from you. Email me at mb, my initials, mb at theagelesswisdom.com. Thanks so much for those of you that are subscribing to Focused Passion. It's 99 cents a week for a studio quality conversation between 
the smartest guy in the field I've ever met, my partner of 30-plus years, Steve Snyder, he and I do compelling conversations. You can't turn it off. Plus guided meditations in studio-quality premium audio programs that you can subscribe to for just 99 cents a week. And unsubscribe as easily as you would anything else. It's very easy. In fact, your satisfaction is guaranteed if at the end of a month you're not happy, we'll rebate your $3.96. And uh, check it out at FocusedPassion.com. There's six free programs waiting for you. All you need to do is get a password and leave your email address. Remember the ED. That's the W's dot FocusedPassion.com. Part of those six free programs is an accelerated learning series I want you to give to your kids, right? Don't make them go to school, or other kids you know, or adults you know that are going back to school. Why make them suffer when you could listen to these four programs and accelerate your learning by an enormous degree? Get those free programs and pass them around. And there's several other programs in there for free. And then if you like what you're hearing, you can subscribe for 99 cents a week, 3.96 a month. In fact, that's 48 programs. You get 52 a year, so even at that price, uh, you get four free programs. So it's really like 93 cents a week or something like that. It's pocket change. It's chump change. And yet it makes such a big difference when you support everything we do in this way. Help us to get this information in front of the people that are looking for it. And everybody needs personal and spiritual development, right? Use the Send One to a Friend gadget on both websites, theagelesswisdom.com and Focused Passion. And join us next week for the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School, always free. Thanks for listening. Thanks for calling. Also, Register for the newsletter at the Ageless Wisdom, or if you just get the free programs, we get your email and make sure you get a newsletter that way. And uh, again, we'll talk to you next week in the Mystery School. Have a wonderful week. Send me your emails. I'd love to hear from you. I promise I'll write you back. And as always, be gentle, love life, and take care of each other. This is Michael Benner. Aloha from Maui. 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 From Maui.